What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 16 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR. This podcast, we're talking to Josh Cuevas. Josh is an associate professor, researcher, and cognitive psychologist in the College of Education at the University of North Georgia, where he teaches courses in assessment, research methodology, educational psychology, and literacy. Prior to entering a PhD in educational psychology, he taught literature and journalism at a secondary level at a diverse high school near Atlanta. He's worked in state assessment through the University of Georgia Educational Research Laboratory, and at the national level through the American Council on Education. He is currently a member of the American Psychological Association. Josh's research interests include applied cognition, assessment, educational measurement, evidence-based reasoning, language and literacy, and quantitative methodologies. He's published peer-reviewed research and popular articles for practitioners on the subjects of applied cognition, higher-order thinking, memory, educational psychology, learning styles, and dual coding, some of which we'll hear about today. Central to Josh's work is the question of how empirical research can be used to inform teacher education in order to improve student learning outcomes in K-12 schools. Now, onto the topic of today's ERRR. Our first article examines the widely held view that different students have different learning styles and that teachers should present information to students in a way that is consistent with their individual learning styles. The learning styles approach is compared to dual coding an approach which suggests that visual information should be presented simultaneously with linguistic information in order to promote learning. These two theories compared and contrasted with fascinating results and very specific implications for teachers' classroom instruction. Our second article, also by Josh, explores silent reading as a method of supporting student learning. Given the advocacy for silent reading approach expressed on the recent Revolution School television program here in Australia, it's wonderful to have an opportunity to explore whether the research really does support this approach to literacy. If you're interested in cognitive science, effective instruction, and supporting students' reading and learning, this ERRR is for you. Before we enter the ERRR, I just wanted to remind listeners that I'm now putting out a Friday email that summarises all the fantastic articles on teaching and learning that I've come across in the previous week. A recent email shared a research summary that I compiled on the transfer paradox, an article on the space between novice and expert learners, a link to a paper on the research of how to write good multiple choice questions, and much, much more. You can sign up for this weekly education digest at ollielovell.com. That's enough of an intro for now, so without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 16 of the ERRR with Josh Cuevas. Josh Cuevas, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Yes, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Fantastic. All right, the first question we ask in the ERRR is, if you're at a party and someone asks you, hi, Josh, what is it that you do? What's your answer? I would tell them I'm I'm a professor and educational psychologist. Most people aren't really aware of what that is and... I usually don't go too much into it unless they're teachers. Then we get into a deep conversation. 
But what I do with research, most people don't find that the most uh, the most exciting thing, but I do. Uh, learning is everything to me. So, yeah, that's what I do. Cool. And how did you come to be where you are now? What's what, what's your career trajectory like? I got a, a bachelor's degree in literature from the University of Georgia many years ago, and I did not know what I wanted to do with my life. I went into business management for about five years, and I found it to be a, a soul-sucking endeavor. didn't feel like I was doing anything important, and if I was doing that, I was 50 or 60, I would have felt like I had done nothing with my life except for make money for other people. So a friend of mine, one night, we're sitting at a bar, and he said, I'm, I'm getting my master's in English education. You should try that too. So I did. I went back to school, got my certification to teach English, became a high school English teacher, taught literature at the 10th, 11th grade level. But while I was training for that, I I worked in assessment. So that taught me a lot about writing and, and how to look at student achievement. And so even though I was an English teacher, I was, I've always had a, a penchant towards quantitative methodology. So I decided that I like teaching. I wanted to stay in teaching. And I went back to school to get my PhD. And at first I was in language and literacy. But I decided after the first year that it wasn't sciencey enough for me. So I switched to educational psychology. And that's that's where I am now. That's what I'm, I'm happy doing, even though I still do research and reading and things like that. Cool. So you were uh, a school teacher in high school or primary school? Yes, I taught for seven years at a high school in Atlanta. Cool. All right. Well, we might thanks thanks for that, Josh. We might jump into your first paper that you nominated for today, and that was entitled "A Test of Two Alternative Cognitive Processing Models: Learning Styles and Dual Coding." How did you come to be looking at learning styles and dual coding, and why did you think it was important to look at these two topics? I'd heard about learning styles for a while. While I was working on my master's, and this was in the early to mid-2000s, and it seemed like a fad. It was very popular, but I wasn't so sure about the the validity of it. And so I, I started to look more and more into the research. And one of the early papers that I came across was Catherine's, and that's I've incorporated her paper into my work from very early on. But I came, the more I read about it, the more I realized that there was a lack of empirical research behind the idea of learning styles. So when I finished my PhD, I went and I interviewed with the university where I work now. And of course, with the the candidates, they asked them to do basically to teach a class and the the professors on the hiring board come in and watch you teach this graduate level class for 45 minutes or so. And so I said, sure, of course. And I said, what, what do you want me to teach on? And uh, they said, well, learning style. Oh, no. Yeah. And uh, so I thought about it and, you know, I wasn't going to go in there because I knew the other people who were interviewing probably would go in there and say, well, this is great. Everybody should teach according to learning styles. And, you know, but I couldn't do that. I had to be, go in there and be honest. I knew it was a risk 
to go in there and essentially tear it to shreds. But I guess I decided that if the college was so ideologically tied to this concept that they were not interested in the actual research on it, then that wasn't going to be the place for me to work anyways. But I went in, I, I gave my I gave my presentation. The students loved it. We had a great debate. All three professors were in the back of the room and they laughed the whole time that they were not, were not expecting that. And I got the job. So here, here I am. Gustav, so it wasn't like a secret test where they asked you to teach something that was fake and then wanted to find out if you actually knew it was fake or not? No, no. I think this was something that was that was already being taught a lot in the in the college, and it it was a diversity class, and and lots of times people think of learning styles in terms of diversifying education, but you know I, I had to go in there and be honest and 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 treat treat it the way I would treat any any concept and look at the research and 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 try to help the students understand that research. Got it. So. If learning styles is true, and this is this is something you start to explore in your paper, like how would we test for it? And you mentioned this thing called the matching hypothesis. I was wondering if you could outline what the matching hypothesis is in relation to learning styles. Okay, basically, and I always I never refer to learning styles as a theory because a, a theory is something that has been confirmed through extensive testing. I, I always refer to learning styles as a hypothesis, busted hypothesis. But basically, the, the, the premise of the hypothesis is that each one of us has a preferred learning style. And so we have, on the one hand, the, the variable of, of our personal characteristic, that disposition, that, that learning style. And then on the other hand, you have instruction. That's the other variable. Now, if the preferred learning style and the instructional style match up, then you will get a different outcome. So this is where we would talk about an interaction effect. Most people know of an interaction effect in terms of if you go to the pharmacist and you get some medication, you look on the bottle and it will tell you certain things that you should not take while you are taking that medication. So for instance, if you were to take that medication, it might clear up whatever whatever ailment you're having, and that's fine. Or if you were, say, to drink alcohol without taking the medication, you would just have the normal effects of alcohol. But when you put those two together, when you layer one on top of the other, you get a different effect. So that interaction effect between the medication and the alcohol is an unintended effect. And in this case, it's a bad thing when you get the effect that you only get when both of these variables are in place. With the learning styles hypothesis, that interaction effect would be a good thing. You have the learner's preference and you have the instructional style. And when they match up, say a visual learner with a visual instructional style, then the interaction effect should create increased learning. But it has to happen in every condition. So those auditory learners who are matched with the auditory style, they have to perform better or learn more under that condition. The visual learners, when matched to a visual style, 
learn more when they're in that condition. It, it can't work just in one condition or, or another. It has to work across conditions. Okay, so that's the matching hypothesis, and that's ex- essentially what you, you hope to explore and to test within this paper. Another theory, or I don't know, you might tell us it's a hypothesis as well, that often gets mixed up with learning styles is that of Gardner's multiple intelligences. What is the difference between these two views of, of learning dispositions? Gardner originally hypothesized that there were seven, eight different intelligences. He's added a couple. I, th- I think the main difference is that learning styles kind of reduces that, just takes the visual element, just takes the auditory element, just takes the kinesthetic slash tactile element, and tends to reduce it to three. Now, there are other learning learning styles, models that cold and a, a variety of other ones, but in, in education, particularly K-12, and and even through the college level, the visual, auditory, and kinesthetic are the most popular. But in terms of multiple intelligences, it's that's very much ingrained. Just a few miles from me, there's a high school devoted to multiple intelligences. It's the Multiple Intelligences Academy. I don't know any actual psychologists who view multiple intelligences as a valid model. Gardner tended to be a theorist in the in the general sense of the word and, and tended not to actually follow up his his ideas with empirical testing. Now I know that multiple intelligences intelligences is also something that is widely accepted in the field of education. But when I talk to co- other cognitive psychologists and, and other people in cognitive scientists, they tend not to, they just don't see the evidence for multiple intelligences. Now, I think it has some validity if you're to not, not think of it as separate intelligences, but maybe separate inclinations or abilities. Some of Gardner's most basic predictions did not pan out. So if we're to look at the, you know, those eight intelligences that we're supposed to have, because they are separate intelligences in each one of our cognitions, Gardner would have predicted that there would, should be no correlation between them. So there shouldn't, should not be a correlation between someone's verbal intelligence and someone's mathematic intelligence, some, someone's tactile intelligence and and we just don't find that to be the case. We find that there are actually high, high correlations between them. The example I use with my classes is, say you have a concert pianist, okay? That concert pianist, she will have obviously high musical intelligence, but she, visual spatial, she has to know exactly where those white and black keys are and know where the layout is on the keyboard. So she will likely have high visual spatial intelligence. Mathematic intelligence, that is, all music is mathematical. That's what scales are. The notes relate to each other mathematically. Most likely she's gonna be good at math. Verbal intelligence, most likely she can communicate and she's, she's worked with a piano teacher for many years and they communicated verbally. She can probably read pretty well. Kinesthetic, tactile, 
she probably she has to use the, those her fingers on those keys and she is probably going to be high in that as well. So like, do we find, for instance, take an engineer who is going to be high in mathematical intelligence. Do you find many engineers who are also illiterate, who are off the charts low in verbal intelligence? That it doesn't really work that way. So the, the evidence seems to point more towards the classic G, general intelligence rather than multiple intelligences. Okay. So, I think that, well, to my mind, learning styles creates a problem or a challenge for education in that it specifies how teachers should behave in relation to these hypothesized learning styles. And that's a problem because it takes time, instructional time away from more effective approaches. Does multiple intelligences make the same assertions or is it kind of just a nice way to say, everyone's got value, you're musical, that doesn't make you any less valuable than you're mathematical? In my mind, it, it, it is the latter of the two scenarios that you just posed. And it, it points out that we all have things that we are good at or, or that we might have tendencies towards. And, and that's not a bad thing. And Gardner himself has said that he never intended for his model to be put in the classroom in into practical application the way it is kind of translated he never he never intended for for instance history teachers to be told that they should have a musical component to their history lesson and i'm not saying that that can't happen i'm just saying that if you try to pressure teachers and tell them that they must create a lesson plan with each of these multiple intelligences and or learning styles in, in order to be truly diversifying that instruction. That's quite a burden on those teachers. And if you're going to make that demand, I think you need to be sure that there is evidence that there will be productive outcomes from that. And we just don't have that. Got it. It's interesting because maybe if there were fewer of Gardner's intelligences, then teachers would have pressure placed upon them to cater to the different intelligences in the same ways that they are for learning styles. But just because there's eight, everyone knows that's ridiculously unrealistic, so it just doesn't happen. Might be the case. I am Juan, and I work in secondary teaching mathematics. Given that you've, you've very strictly mentioned this being a hypothesis, the, the learning styles, why did you feel and need because it appears that this paper is specifically written in such a way or researched in such a way to say that this shouldn't be looked at this is a better this is a better method to say this is something that's effective versus learning styles which is not given that it, you already believe it to be a hypothesis and believe that there is already so much research out there disproving the hypothesis why did you need that to add more to it yes that's a good question and i think part of that is that it is so ubiquitous in both teacher education and teacher preparation programs and in, in the everyday classroom. If we, if we go back and look at a very influential article from 2009, Pashler, they found that there just was not much, there was no supporting evidence. But they also made the case that 
there just weren't a lot of studies that were designed to test that matching hypothesis and look for an interaction effect. So a paper I, I wrote in 2015 looked at the experimental evidence between that time, between 2009 and 2015, and because Hashler laid out exactly how the experiment should be designed. So I wanted to see, well, are there researchers who have filled in that gap and designed those studies? Now we're starting to see some of those come out. There's Rogowski in 2015 in the Journal of Educational Psychology and a few more. But there, there was never any supporting evidence. But it's not until now where we are really getting the, the empirical evidence, those studies that are starting to really very clearly refute the learning styles hypothesis. But I mean, part of it is that I'm not sure if it's teachers don't want to believe that it doesn't work or whether it's so ingrained from their teacher education programs and people just can't seem to let go of it. And so that has been kind of part of my quest. I see myself a little bit as being a myth buster. Hi, Josh, it's Catherine. Hi. Look, there's a, there was a nice little piece of work done in England a few years ago now looking at why teachers continue to be, I don't know, convinced by learning styles. But basically what came out was that the teachers said that it didn't really matter to them whether it was true or not because it allowed them to tick a particular box in the list of things that they were supposed to do. So when they were asked to personalise learning, which of course has been a thing for a while now, they had not in any way ever been taught what that meant or how to do it, but learning styles was an easy thing. They can say, yes, I'm personalising my learning because I'm using learning styles. And to them, it didn't matter at all whether it was a, a true hypothesis or not, because it simply allowed them to deal with the paperwork. I think that's from the practicalities of the classroom and the expectation on teachers. I think it's really important to look at the prag, you know, to consider the pragmatics of it as well as the, the truth value of it. Handing back to Wally now. Yes, I agree. I cited that study as well. Is it Stuart? But yeah, I, I know exactly the study you're talking about. And that was, it was kind of appalling to me to hear that, that the teachers could have the evidence put in front of them that was done in their own classrooms and, and still say, well, it doesn't, the evidence doesn't matter to me. With my own students, what I tell them is the study that uh, we're talking about here, it's a demonstration that I use in class and I use it with them to show them, hey, look, it doesn't work. And then we, we read all the other literature on it, read Catherine's paper on it. What I tell my, my students is that they should not go into the classroom for their first jobs and get into an ideological battle with the principal or their department head and say, no, no, learning styles, it, you know, I, I know the real truth about learning styles. And it's just not a, a good thing for a new teacher to do. Unless you're applying for a job at a university. <laughs> yeah, unless you're applying for a university, then you do that. No, I actually stood up and had a, I had a stand-up row with the with the interview committee when I was going for a job in a university, and I didn't get it. Funny enough, I didn't get that job. Well, then it wasn't the right place for you to be. 
But yeah, so this is what what I tell my students is that look, just if if you have an assistant principal or principal come to you and preach how you need to be using learning styles, just nod your head and say, and what you can what you can do then is you can show the ways that you do differentiate instruction because that's really what they're asking you to do. So then you can you know show them the visuals that you are using to go along with the information and which is supported by dual coding, but not to go in there and get in a huge row, you know, that your first, second year, then maybe once they get to be department heads five, six years later, then, you know, they can change the trajectory of it. But yeah, I, not, not the best idea to go in and try to convince the principals that they are wrong about their educational philosophy. Thanks, Jason. Just to follow up on how ubiquitous it is, I, I wanted to find out really some stats on it and I found a paper that was published in 2017 by Kelly McDonald at the University of Denver and they found out that 93% of the general public and 76% of educators agreed with the following sentence, individuals learn better when they receive information in their preferred learning style, auditory, visual, kinesthetic. So, that was 93 of the public and 76 of educators. So, it really is pretty much everybody. It's amazing. So, maybe now we'll move on to the second approach taken in this study, which is dual coding. Could you outline for us, Josh, what dual coding is? Okay. Well, let me actually use some principles of dual coding. Okay. There's a glass in front of me. Can you see the glass? We can see the glass. Okay. So, this glass represents our linguistic capacity. Okay, mm-hmm. so what will happen is I can you can put some information into that glass. Okay, so this is the teacher putting linguistic information into the students' linguistic the, the linguistic component of their cognition. So Josh has poured water from a jug into that glass and filled up the glass. So if I was to keep going with this, what would happen? It would spill over the side. It would spill over the side. So that water that spills over the side, that's the information that is lost. Okay, we have pretty much by filling up this glass, we have thrown the student into cognitive overload with linguistic information. And any more linguistic information we give them at this time, they just can't process. They won't retain it. And the way this pans out in a typical classroom, you might have a teacher who's who's lecturing. They also have a PowerPoint on the board, not with visuals, but with notes and paragraphs. And the students are also supposed to be writing and they're supposed to be copying copying down the notes. They're supposed to be listening to the teacher and they're supposed to be reading the notes at the same time. All that linguistic information put together is going to ensure that the students do not retain any of that information. They are thrown into cognitive overload. And if they were to learn it, the only way they would have to learn it is to make sure they take really good notes and then go home and learn it themselves at night. Mm -hmm. But what dual coding suggests is you also have this, this visual storage. Another glass. I can add more information, even though the, the verbal storage is at capacity, I can add more information to the visual storage without overloading 
the verbal storage and causing the student to lose this, okay? So by layering both types of information, it essentially allows for more storage capacity. So that's the that's how I would that's how I would describe dual coding in a simple sense. Got it. And and the first class, the linguistic one, you said is generally situated in the le- left hemisphere of the brain, and the visual visual one is located in the right. And is this related to Badley's model of working memory as well? I'm not very familiar with that. That's the idea of the left right hemisphere. That's very, that's tenuous. We know that linguistic information is mainly handled in the left hemisphere in most of the population. I think it's somewhere about 86% of the population and the other 14% or so are usually left-handed and might handle the linguistic information in the right hemisphere. So that, that part we are pretty certain about. The question of the visual aspect, well, we know the visual visual signals are processed first in the occipital lobe in the back. It's really the right hemisphere is really for spatial information, but there's been conflicting findings in terms of the the neuroscience as to what parts of the brain seem to be activated for for usually those those studies test concrete words against abstract words, because abstract words, they generally have no visual component. So theoretically, that should only be processed in this side. Those concrete words that have a visual component, hammer, car, those theoretically would be processed more in this side once we visualize those. But that hasn't always been the case. The research has been conflicting on that, whereas different parts of the brain seem to be activated in both the left and right hand side with concrete terms. Okay, that's interesting. I was actually quite interested when I was reading your paper and I came across this left-right hemisphere kind of representation of it because I hadn't seen it done in that way. And I I also thought that I'd recalled reading that it was more complex than that as well. So, yeah, I was interested that you represented it like that. And and my understanding of dual coding was always based ac- upon like, you know, Badley's model of working memory with the visual sp- spatial sketch pattern, the phonological loop and that kind of a thing. So wh- why did you why did you feel it necessary to to talk about the left and right hemispheres in this context? Because of that that research a lot of the research on dual coding has been with is they've often contrasted the those con- concrete terms versus the abstract terms and m- much of the that research has looked at the the hemispheric aspect of it and that's kind of where my little study it it, it wasn't dealing with the concrete verse versus the abstract it was all concrete so it kind of diverged from that and of course as an educational psychologist and not a neurologist, I didn't have access to fMRI machines and all that that fun stuff to actually scan people's brains. Although I was lucky enough to be a guinea pig in an experiment like that one time during my doctoral, when I was working on my doctorate. But uh, yeah, that's not something I have available to me. So I, I guess I was just trying to present different possibilities and aspects. And at this point, we, I would say, 
we're not sure how it works in terms of the the neurobiology. We just know with pretty good certainty that it it does work. We see the results. Okay. We just don't know how exactly. So so you've talked about dual coding and and some would imagine that as being someone speaking at the same time as showing students or participants an image, and that's all, always the way that I imagine it. But maybe we can broaden that definition, and I think Kai had a question on this one. I think you've answered it in what you were saying, but I think you've clarified that my understanding is visual information is an actual image rather than just words. The only other question that I had was in terms of the maybe you could go a little bit into the mechanics. Do you need to give time for that visual? So, for example, would you give a visual image? You need time for the students to process that. Then you would speak or can the brain process the words with the image at the same time? I'm not sure if that's been clarified. I think we would we would generally conclude that, yeah, they can process it both at the same time. So what I suggest, you know, I use PowerPoints in my presentations. And I, I think what, what novice teachers will often do is they've got their lesson plans and they've got their notes and then they just paste them into a PowerPoint and they just read from them or they, it's, it's just more of the same words up there. That's, that's not effective. So what I do is I, if, if I'm using a PowerPoint, I will make sure I'll go to Google, Google Images and find images that really tie into the main concepts that I'm discussing at the moment. And so, you know, the students w- w- might be having a discussion in class, but everything they see on the board relates to that in some way, shape or form. And that kind of reinforces they have that, that visual imagery to go along with it. But another question is whether they actually have to see an image. And there is some research that suggests that just the act of imagining an image will do it. And this re- in this research that I did, I used a, a demonstration that is kind of an old demonstration. It's been used for a couple decades in psychology courses to demonstrate dual coding. And it's just a, a simple little demonstration, but there are no actual images in it. Essentially, we were prompting part of the class and the students did not realize that they had different instructions. They all thought they had the same instructions. But part of the class was simply asked to imagine, a, basically picture what they're hearing. And that is where the difference came from. There was a, a massive difference. The students in the visual condition, and this is, this is consistent. There were uh, about 204 students in this study, but I've done it with professors. I've done this uh, at conferences, and it is consistent that whoever is in the visual condition remembers about twice as much as the people in the auditory condition, regardless of what they say their learning style is. And they, they never do actually see any image. All they have to do is imagine the image and they remember more. Cool. This is very interesting and it's related to uh, an old Greek approach to memorizing long stories, which is the method of loci, which is essentially where you visualize yourself in different rooms of your house or something like that and tie the story to it, which I hadn't heard of dual coding as relating to getting people to just visualize things. So, yeah, I thought that was very, very interesting as well. So, just to recap on that, in your study, you had all your participants 
you had 20 sentences and you said to the participants, we're going to read out these 20 sentences and all we want you to do is put a rating from one to five. And for half the participants, you said, rate from one to five, how easily can you form a vivid mental picture of this sentence? And for the other group, you said, rate from one to five, how easily you can pronounce this. And then you, they didn't realize there'd be tests on the sentences afterwards, but then you tested them on the sentences and it was that the, the visualizing group uh, had 81.9% retention and the considering pronunciation group had 40.2% retention. Beth had a really good question in relation to the the approach of this study. Thank you, Ollie. Yeah, my question is a little bit of a challenge, I think. I guess when I was thinking about the different conditions that the participants were exposed to, to me it seemed like the one who was the group that were being asked to process the information by visualizing it, they're really focusing on the meaning of the sentence, the substantive content, I guess you could say. Whereas the other group are being asked to focus on the sound of the words and how easily they can pronounce them. So to me, that didn't seem like the groups really had the equivalent opportunity to focus on the meaning. And when I was thinking about that, I'm like, well, how could you get over that? And I feel like if you're focusing on concrete concepts, forming a mental image of the thing that you're talking about is probably what's going to happen if you're going to remember it. I'm not sure if other people's brains work differently to mine, but for me, you know, visualization is pretty important. So I was thinking perhaps, you know, would it make more sense to try and work with abstract concepts and do something more along the lines of, you know, asking people to process an abstract concept with or without the visual images? Yeah, I think there are lots of possibilities that that could be done with this. We have we have discussed doing it with actual images. We have d- discussed also having a condition where people saw the words and having a condition where people actually heard. So for instance, they might see a, a picture of a bear or they might see the word bear or they might hear a bear growling or they might hear someone read the word bear. So there are all these possibilities that would then you could look at a lot more different interaction effects, and then you have a, a bunch of different groups. It, it would be a little bit more complex, and you'd have we'd have to incorporate some extra technology and try to make sure that the the images are or, or that the, the the different conditions were as equivalent as possible. But I think what you what you suggested is exactly why dual coding works. So if I was to go back to the the glasses, the auditory condition, they were just working from this. So they had only linguistic information to deal with and they retained little of it, about half of it. The visual condition, they had both glasses to call upon. So essentially the auditory condition, they were they were thrown into cognitive overload on purpose, uh, whereas the visual condition, they had that extra glass to 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 fill, essentially. And it showed it showed in what they were actually able to remember. Yeah, I feel like that explanation maybe doesn't quite get to the point I was trying to make or raise. Okay. And it's more about 
whether the question of or the prompt to process the information via focusing on the sound of the words, that might not be the best way to process the information linguistically. And maybe I'm just confused about what the different parts of dual processing are still, but I would have thought that the process of kind of taking in information linguistically would be more about focusing on the meaning and linking with other concepts in your brain rather than just can I pronounce this and whether that instruction of can you pronounce this, how easily can you pronounce it, that could have even been a distraction from taking in the meaning in a linguistic I might just add to that briefly before you answer, Josh and Catherine might add something as well. A key quote from Daniel Willingham, which I try to remember all the time, is review each lesson plan in terms of what the student is likely to think about. This sentence may represent the most general and useful idea that cognitive psychology has to offer teachers. What I, what my understanding, what Beth is saying is that by saying how easily can you form a vivid, vivid mental picture, you're getting the this, this participants to actually think about the meaning and encode that meaning in their brain in some way. But by saying, how easily can you pronounce it? You're just getting them to think of the sounds of the words, which might not necessarily help them remember the sentence later on. My understanding would be, well, best question, she kind of proposed it in the group before we started the podcast. And I started to think, how could you adjust the experiment to make sure that the, the students in a linguistic condition are also thinking about the meaning? And I thought maybe something like, try to think about, like a rhyming structure that incorporates the meaning of this sentence or something like that, or some kind of linguistic tool that encapsulates the meaning. That's actually a good idea because one thing, one challenge is how do you get the, the student, the learner to only focus on linguistic information? Now, when we, when we started this off, we actually had a third group. We had a, a group that was us supposed to be the kinesthetic group and the the prompt there asked them how well they could feel the the scenario how well they could they could physically perceive it and what we found was that they were they were retaining just as much as the visual condition and we thought okay why is that the case and so you know we went back to the the, the qualitative aspect and just asked them you know what were you what were you thinking about and it turns out that they were they said that they couldn't feel it at all they were simply visualizing it so they became a de facto visual condition so we we pulled that out so the yeah that the question would be how do you make sure that the that that linguistic group is not adding the visual component on their own and that's that's hard to do but i think your suggestion about Having them think of rhyme structure that that might that might work that might be a, a viable option. But Catherine was going to add something. Well, I was going to quote the sainted Daniel Willingham, but Ollie bought it. See, I've taught them well. They know who to, they know who to cite. Look, I think it's actually this is actually important in terms of what goes on in the real world and how students conceive of learning, because very many students for instance, conceive of reading as simply running their eyes over the text and getting to the end of the, the paragraph or whatever, having heard the words in their head, but in no way engaged with the meaning via whatever, you know, means they might want to use. And, you know, 
a lot of students expect to catch learning by sitting in the classroom while someone talks. So while this was an experiment about the dual processing, it, it actually reflects what goes on in the real world and how a lot of people and students included conceive of learning, that they can catch learning by just hearing words, they can you know, catch learning by running their eyes over text and hearing the words in their head. You know, we did, and tell me if I'm going on too long and taking too much of your time, but I did an experiment with my students a couple of years ago where I got students to, these are te- you know, teachers, people, pre-service teaching, to talk to students in their classes where they were doing their placement and they were you know, asked to find one who a student was doing well and a student who wasn't doing so well and to talk to them about a range of issues which were around the theme of memory actually. And one of the things that came out, there was a very clear difference in the strategies that were used by the students who were successful and the ones that were struggling. And the students who were struggling were really using a kind of mono-processing model. You know, they were hoping to catch learning by being in the classroom while the teacher spoke, or they were just reading the text over and over and over and over and over again. The students, on the other hand, who were being successful, used a whole lot of strategies which really would come under the, the visualisation. They, they drew diagrams, they drew concept maps, they thought up images themselves. So it's actually, I think, what you've done in that experiment gets very much to the heart of different ways that people are trying to interact with information. So anyway, as I said, I've talked for too long. Sorry, this is Kay. I just wanted to add to that. I think that I don't know if possibly a follow-up and continuing from what Beth has said is really that if you, I mean, I, I don't, I thought we, it has been established that if the brain processes the same information in multiple ways, then it'll make multiple connections and that's the way to put it into your memory. And so I think that perhaps, you know, it might be useful to actually test dual coding, whether in and of itself visualization is the key or is it because you've heard something linguistically and then you are doing a second thing and it doesn't need to be visualization. It could actually be think of, you know, someone who this reminds you of, or like it doesn't actually need to be visualization. As long as you're doing more than one thing to process the same information, you're creating more neural connections, which puts it into your working or into your long-term memory or retain memory rather than is it just the act of like, is it, you know, is the golden ticket visualization or is it just a second way of processing the same information will help your brain to retain it, I guess. You guys are coming up with great ideas for uh, experiments here. I, I do think there there that would be a, a viable question to to look at. But I think now so which what we'd want to look at though is that first the first information, the information you want them to retain now, is it in linguistic form? And then afterwards, you're saying maybe, like, maybe we could have some sort of analogy, but you probably you wouldn't be able to put those together at the same time, because if you did, uh, of course, that's too much linguistic information. So you could do one, then the other. And so and in some ways, that would be like revisiting the information. But I guess the the point with dual coding is that it can be done simultaneously that at, at the same time. So let's see something that you could do at the same time. 
you could you could take in aud uh, auditory linguistic information and do something with your hands. So, for instance, construct a model. So there is some re interesting research out there on these instruction manuals, essentially, and what what kind of features these instruction manuals have in them that are the most effective. And it, it turns out that, yes, the more additional types of information tend to be better. So if someone was reading an instruction manual and there is just words, and then you have another person reading the instruction manual and there are words and pictures, the one with the pictures, they perform better. And then there are other variables that can be added in there. But I guess you could potentially do have that linguistic information, someone telling you about it while you're actually doing it with your hands. And that would be that additional mode. So that, that's a possibility as well. Okay. So, so teachers have been listening to this podcast and they go, okay, this dual coding thing sounds pretty good. When they're lesson planning, how do you suggest they think about best incorporating dual coding into their practice? I just tell them to think about images that go along with the concepts that they're teaching. Go out there and find them. Because with the novice teachers, with uh, juniors and seniors, before they have actually gotten into the field, they tend to stick with that verbal information, that linguistic information. Though the juniors who did their little mini teaching lessons today to the, for the class, they had PowerPoints and they had the same thing written on those PowerPoints as they were speaking to the class about. I even saw a senior who was doing a math lesson and he was explaining the equations to the students and not putting them up on the board. And afterwards, I said, why did you write the equations on the board so they could see what what you were explaining? And he said, oh, I should have done that. And so I, I think it's something that maybe experienced teachers are are more used to doing like if you're explaining something and maybe you 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 look around your, your the students maybe you have this perplexed look on their face lots of times i'll just run to the board and start drawing things out and I say this is what i'm talking about so i don't know that there's i don't have any structured methodology for what i tell my students my my in service or pre-service teachers to do other than when i come to see a lesson i want I want to see you have some sort of visuals for the students to look at that will supplement what you're talking about. Got it. Any more questions on this one before we move on to the next paper? I think it's easier with some subject matter to come up with an image. You know, like if you're trying to teach people the geography of South America, for instance, it's really, really easy to have a map up there, you know, but and which is obviously a whole lot better than saying, well, this is where Ecuador is and the countries that border on Ecuador. I mean, that's a pointless way to teach. So, you know, I think it's really challenging for some subject matters. As, a, as an English teacher, past English teacher, how would you, how would you use – this is not me being challenging. This is me really wanting to know. How could you use visualisation 
if you were teaching literature of some sort, other than have pictures of the characters. Before I let you say, I, I do have some suggestions, for example, for what I use, which may be helpful to teachers, but I often may put up something and ask, how does this image relate to a concept and have the students um, interpret them themselves. So, for example, if I teach a text response, I'll put up multicolored sunglasses and say, how do you think this relates to a text response? And actually, it's good because each student has their own way of linking that, which, you know, I have an answer that I thought of, but I often hear things I've never heard of. So, you know, my answer is like, you see it in different ways, but it's not incorrect. But the different lenses obviously give you a different reading of the text type. I mean, that's the way, or if I uh, talk about structuring an essay, I put a treasure map on the board and say, you know, how does this relate to, why is it important to structure? How is it related to the map? And, you know, if you don't have a map, and it's not clear, you you won't find the treasure, which is your hypothesis or your thesis statement or whatever. So, I mean, that's one way that I use images. I try to get an abstract concept and get the students to sort of like something that visualizes what we want to talk about. Well, to address Catherine's question, you know, of course, you can have students visualize what is going on or describe what what is going on in the story. But English teachers use timelines all the time. That's that's a visual representation of, uh, and then from those timelines, you can talk about cause and effect. And so I definitely think that, yeah, I mean, there are, there are certainly ways that, that teachers can pull those in, but I, I think it really just needs to be left up to the teacher in terms of using their creativity and, and thinking about what the objectives of the lessons are and, and what those what what the, what those teachers want the students to get out of the lesson and then they can figure out okay this is this is how to best represent that yeah I, I asked that as a sort of almost professional curiosity because before I became an academic I was an art teacher so it's all pictures. <laughs> Well, English is a fantastic segue into your second paper we were going to talk today, talk about today, Josh, and that was Applied Cognition, Testing the Effects of Independent Silent Reading on Secondary Students' Achievement and Attribution. What made you want to look into independent silent reading? Well, when I was a, an English teacher at the high school level, I read somewhere in a text that sustained silent reading was supposedly helpful for students at all levels. And I was speaking with a friend of mine who was also an English teacher, and I asked him how often he had his students read in his classroom. And he said, we don't have time for that. And I said, well, when you assign these novels for students to read at home for homework, how many of the students in your class out of, say, a class of 30, how many of, of them do you think are actually reading it at home? And he said, oh, almost none of them, maybe five or six. And so I, I began to realize well, what a lot of teachers are doing is, is exactly what he was doing. And so the way the, the students are learning literature is that they're, they come into class unprepared, they haven't read the material, and they listen to the teacher talk about literature. And, that's, and then they're tested on whether they remember what the teacher said about that literature. And it's pretty clear that that's, that's not gonna do a whole lot for their reading ability. And 
I, it might extend their vocabulary a little bit, but it's not going to it's not going to improve their reading ability if they are not reading. So I started looking into independent silent reading as a way to ensure because, I mean, I think even at the high school level, my my main responsibility as a teacher was to make sure that my students were reading and that they're improving their comprehension ability above all else. That's why I looked into independent silent reading. Got it. So in the study, you had three conditions, and this was this was for some it was for an American literature course in high school, and there were three conditions. In the first condition, you got the teachers to teach this literature course in exactly the same way as they always do. In the second condition, you introduced was it was it one hour a week? One hour a week. So basically, twenty these classes were one hour five days a week. So twenty percent of the class time was devoted to reading. Okay, and so there were two conditions for the independent silent reading. The first was textbook-based, and the second was computer-based. And in each, in each silent reading episode, they read around a 3,500-word passage. That was one of the texts that was referred to within this literature course. And then you had these accountability measures. Could you tell us what these, what these accountability measures were and what the purpose of them was? They're simply reading comprehension questions that the students answered while they read. So not after they read, but while they read. And in putting this together, essentially what I did is I, I tried to find any research or literature, or we'll call it research since it was a literature class. So I tried to find any research that showed anything that would help to improve students' reading comprehension. And then we packaged it all together. So there's, I think one of the questions you might have had is, how do you parse out which was having an effect? And this, we really couldn't. It was the package overall. So the experimental groups had advanced organizers. They previewed the vocabulary. They had these reading comprehension questions all packaged together. So the purpose of the accountability measure was not so much to be an assessment. It was to get students to attend to the text and to keep their attention focused. What I noticed early on as a high school teacher when I started doing independent silent reading with my students is that, you know, these students were 16, 17 years old. If I asked them to read for 45 minutes to an hour, about 10 minutes into the reading, students would be looking around and bothering other students. They couldn't concentrate on reading for that long. They just, they, they wouldn't do it. Uh, well, I wouldn't say they wouldn't do it. It wasn't that they were behaviorally resistant to it. It's that they're, they had not trained their attention spans to attend to reading for that long. So what the accountability measures would do is they had to answer those questions and they were open-ended. So they couldn't Christmas tree and they couldn't guess on a multiple choice type scenario. It's essentially, they either read it and answered the question or they didn't. And the questions were sequential. So as they would, in the first, say, half page, they would somewhere in there is the answer to the first question. So as they would read, they would fill out the questions. And it was really not an assessment, but as a way to make sure that they attended to the task. And what I found was after about five or six weeks of doing this, they had no problem reading for 45 minutes to an hour. 
Wow. Could you go into a bit more detail about what these questions look like? Because there's obviously many different types of questions you can ask about a text. You can say, you know, what was the name of Josh's dad? Or you can say, why do you think Josh said this phrase in this scenario? What kind of questions were they? They started out, it, say they would have 10 questions to answer in this eight, eight page passage they were reading. They tended to start it out being lower order surface level questions. Uh, explicit. They can find them right there in the text. And as they move through the text, they the questions would get a little bit more abstract to where the final couple questions tended to be higher order to ask them more interpretive questions to put meaning, meaning together from the whole text. Okay. Well, so what were, what were the outcomes of this study? How did, how did people go who did better? And, and was there anything that surprised you? Also, also in terms of talking about this, it's probably worth us mentioning or worth you referring to the measures that you use to, to check out whether who learned what and who learned more of what. Okay. We were looking at reading comprehension. This, this was my dissertation study. So we measured everything. I've got a spreadsheet with we measured mo- reading, reading motivation on two different scales. We measured attribution. We measured comprehension. We measured vocabulary total reading. What we found, uh, the the most promising finding was the global comprehension. The treatment groups, they they had about twice the gains in global comprehension as the control group. And what was encouraging about this is that we use two different measures for this. There's the the Gates-McGinnity reading test, which is widely used in, in studies on reading. There's also an end-of-course test that is a standardized test that the state gives, and that had a reading comprehension section. What really strengthened the results was that the students in the treatment groups showed the same gains on the Gates-McGinnity test as they showed on the state end-of-course test. So they, they showed gains in about the same proportions on both tests which suggests that there's something going on there. If I recall correctly, there, there, it showed there is no noticeable gains in vocabulary. There was no difference, though, between the computer module group and the textbook group, and that was a little surprising because the computer module group had everything that the textbook group did in terms of the advanced organizers, but they had it in a little bit more effective fashion in that, say, for instance, the textbook group, they had the vocabulary previewed for them, whereas the computer module group, they had the, the vocabulary in the actual text. So if, they, if the students scrolled over certain words, the definition of that word as it was used in the sentence popped up. So as they were scrolling through the text, they could look and identify any words they didn't understand and find the meaning to them in the context of the sentence. However, we were a little bit surprised that the computer module group did not perform any better in reading comprehension than the textbook group did. They showed an increase in motivation, but that's a pretty common finding when technology is incorporated. Students are just a little bit more interested and engaged when when technology is used, but it didn't have any noticeable effect on their reading comprehension beyond what the textbook did. So I had a question about 
I guess, yeah, something that I noticed from the study. So all the students were reading the same text or the same text and presumably they were quite complex and the students in the class would have had a range of reading abilities. So in Australian primary schools, the standard practice is to make sure that students are reading texts that either match their current reading ability or are slightly above. And the theory is that students who have kind of asked to or forced to read texts that are well above their comprehension level, they're not going to make the same kind of gains in improving their reading skills. So did you find that your study supported that theory? Did students like initial reading comprehension levels impact the degree to which they were able to improve through this independent silent reading program? I did not look, we did not look at that aspect of it in terms of whether the gains were more or or less between the, the different levels of readers. But what you're suggesting, that is what I do advocate for in my reading classes, is to make sure that when the teachers are choosing reading material for students, to, to choose material that is at their level or just slightly above that will make the, that will challenge them, that will, that will require them to stretch themselves a little bit to learn new vocabulary. I guess the difference is when I'm teaching my, those reading courses now, I'm usually teaching those to middle grades teachers. And in our system here, middle grades teachers have a great deal more uh, freedom in terms of choosing the literature that students read. Once they get into high school, they have a pretty set curriculum in that here are the here are the texts that are that go with this curriculum. Here are the texts that students are supposed to read if they're reading American literature. You know Thoreau, Emerson, Hawthorne, which I actually don't agree with because then you get into situations where you might have students who are who come into a 10th or 11th grade class reading on a say sixth grade level and you're putting this this classic literature in front of them yet on their end of course test that's what they're going to be tested on is this this more complex literature so there's a bit of a disconnect between what we ideally you should be using in the classroom and what the curriculum is. And a lot of times teachers are put into a bind in that, you know, kid comes in with a sixth grade reading level and well, he's got a sixth grade reading level, but it's still your job to get him to an 11th grade level by the end of this school year. Well, I mean, that's not going to happen, but if you can bring him up two grade levels, that's, that's a great accomplishment. That's way more than he has been developing up until that point. So I do think that's there is some weakness there. I'm not sure what the not sure what the answer is in terms of what we should be doing because now, you know, the classrooms with special ed students, they're inclusive and special ed students are supposed to be in classrooms with regular ed students. But then what in some ways that can make it difficult for them in that now they have these texts that are written at 11th grade level that the teacher is expected to help to get them to comprehend. And it puts the teacher in a difficult place. 
I I guess my question is, did you find in your study that students who were of a significantly lower reading ability than the text, so presumably outside of their zone of proximal development, and in theory, they shouldn't be able to, like our teaching theories in Australia are that if you give them something that's way too hard, they just won't access it and like they won't grow. Did you find in your study that someone who, a student who was reading well below the level of the text still made gains because I do think that our struggle in high school when we implement independent reading is that if every student chooses a different text, it is almost impossible for a teacher to have accountability measures. And I've tried with, you know, a writer's notebook or something like that, but the students just make up the answers to those questions and I can't possibly read all the books, so I don't know. And so I guess my question is that if I do make all my students read the same text, did you still see gains in a student who was reading well above their ability level? And is it then still a worthwhile activity to have independent reading, having all students read the same text? Well, yeah, that's that's what I'm getting at in that. Well, I don't know that that is the best approach. Ideally, I would say that we... We high school teachers would have more freedom to choose different texts that go into that particular class, but we didn't look at we didn't look at the the stratified. So we didn't compare just the lowest level readers in this group to lowest level readers in this group and lowest level readers in this group just because the sample sizes weren't there to break it down into such in, into such small slices. So essentially, we're, we looked at them as groups and, you know, we used ANCOVA to control for their prior reading levels, but that does that as a, as a group. So you're controlling for the, the control group, the treatment group, and the second treatment group as a whole, their prior reading levels. But I would have to actually go back and look at the raw data and, and find the actual students who are reading the lowest and see what kind of gains they made. That would be, there weren't enough, as I said, the, the sample wasn't big enough to do a statistical analysis on that, but I could probably eyeball it and come out with some sort of descriptive answer for you, but you know, that I'd have to look, at, look back at it. Hi, it's Catherine again. The evidence is that the more people read, the better they get at it. So basically just getting people to read is extremely important. But um, my understanding is that after a certain grade in school, one of the biggest problems for people's reading is lack of background knowledge to be able to interpret what it is that they're reading. So I should imagine if you're popping a text down for, for kids to read, one of the important things to do is to understand what background knowledge is assumed by the author and to make sure that before kids are let loose on the text, they have a you know, a reasonably good handle on that background information. Anyway, that's uh, just an observation. Yeah, absolutely. The way I illustrated this to my pre-service teachers last week in class was I gave them a couple of pages from this study, just the, just the results section, just the statistical jargon, and asked them to read it and then summarize it. But I also wrote up, I play a lot of electric guitar and have these vintage amplifiers from the 1960s and 70s. 
And I wrote up a description of one of them as I would on my like guitar website blog. And I, I gave that to the, the students as well and asked them to read it as just a short passage and, and summarize it. And they, most of them couldn't interpret either one of them. They couldn't interpret the, the stats. They just haven't gotten to that point in their education where they are familiar with statistical analysis. But they also couldn't interpret the, the little passage on the guitar amplifier, not because the terminology was too complex or sophisticated for them, but they didn't, they just simply didn't have the background knowledge of that type of information. So one of the things I stress to my students is that, just like Catherine said, that all authors, all authors assume that the reader will have some amount of background knowledge, but too often teachers, their assumptions about the background knowledge that their students have may not be accurate because that background knowledge can vary wildly between between different students. No, those of the people here that have been my students know that I have various ways of torturing them in class to demonstrate that the importance of a having a frame of reference to interpret what's going on. Have have you seen that? It's very very old now, where students are given a piece of prose. It's been I think the thing was first done in the nineteen seventies, and some some are given the, the prose with a title on it, and some are given the prose without the title, and then it's tested to see how much they remember. I used to torture my students in class with that on a regular basis, and those with the title who then have a frame of reference do much better on the little pop quiz that comes afterwards, whereas those that are just looking at these words without a frame of reference. Anyway, enough of that. Back to Wally. I want to I wanna find it because there's – here, I'm just waiting for Kindle to load. There's a passage in Daniel Willingham's Why Students Don't Like School that really encapsulates this perfectly. If you'll if you'll bear with me for a second, okay. So here's here, here's an example from Daniel Willingham's "Why Students Don't Like School." Here's a set of instructions. Please try to interpret these instructions. The procedure is actually quite simple. First, you arrange items into different groups. Of course, one pile may be sufficient depending on how much there is to do. If you have to go somewhere else due to lack of facilities, that is the next step. Otherwise, you're pretty well set. It's important not to overdo things. That is, it's better to to do too few things at once than too many. And, it, and the passage goes on in, a va- in the vein of vague and meandering kind of path. And, of course, it's impo- impossible to interpret that unless, of course, you know that you're washing clothes and then everything makes sense. So, just a, a fun little example there. I did have a question about feedback, Josh. These students who are writing answers to these 10 or so questions that started off surface level and got to more higher order thinking, did they receive any feedback on these? Um, Kaya before mentioned that it's in, when all students are reading kind of different texts, it's impossible to go through, you know, 20, 30 books and read what they've all written. Did they get feedback on that? And do you, how important do you think it is whether or not a teacher reads what the students write about what they've been reading? <laughs> yeah, they... They got feedback on it. So they would, these were open-ended questions and they were score graded. They also took actually more objective tests the next day to further assess. And then we, we would talk about the text later. But in terms of 
how important it is for teachers to read everything that students write, I think it's absolutely essential. If <laughs> that's that is that's kind of my thing is like if you look at the feedback that I give my own students, it's I mean I'll you'll you'll see about an essay on each one of their essays. And I probably spend the vast majority of my time assessing students' work. So much more than planning, I spend time grading. And I do that because I think that's my responsibility to my students. But my students who are going to be teachers, I also do that as kind of a modeling exercise. And I let them know that, you know, if they're not going to read and provide feedback on students' work, Students are going to realize that pretty quickly. And what's that going to tell the student? That's going to tell the student that they don't have to think about things very deeply. They don't have to provide quality answers because it's not going to matter. The teacher isn't going to look at it. So I tell my students, if you're going to make students do it and if you're going to collect it, then you better read it and you better provide feedback to them, both about what they did well and what they can improve upon. In in particular, with with this study, the students all received feedback, but it wasn't until after they were assessed for these during these accountability measures. Because one thing that you want to avoid is giving them a test or testing them on it after you've already given them the information, you want to see if the way they perform on a test is due to what they gain from the reading or not, and not their their performance being based on whether they whether you you personally gave them that information during a lecture. So even with my college students, they turn in their weekly chapter summaries on the first day of class for that week before we discuss it. So they don't turn in their work after we've discussed it, at which that in turn, that's another accountability measure that makes sure that they have to read it before they come to class. And then our discussions are much better because they've read the material. They have something to talk about. Hi, it's Kay. I just wanted to follow on from what you've said. It's very interesting because I think that the prevailing approach in Australia currently is a big push for having all your lesson plans shown and having all your unit plans done before you've met your students and having this all done in advance, which kind of is counterintuitive or goes against, you know, what we understand of learning in the sense that really the best feedback is from the student to the teacher. And when I read my students' work, that should inform my next day's lesson because I can see their mistakes or I can see where their misunderstandings or where their lackings are, but because, you know, we have a great pressure to tick all the boxes and have lesson plans done in advance and having unit plans done in advance, it makes it very hard to be a responsive teacher and actually act on the needs of the students. And I think that this kind of research is very useful in us having these discussions because I think we need to push back on that prevailing concept that an organized teacher who's planned in advance is actually a better teacher than a teacher who takes what she can or he can see from their students and then uses that to fill in the gaps. And I've found that for my students, I mean, and obviously this isn't a research study, but 
when I've taught something and then I've actually looked at the work, I have to disregard what I've planned because I've seen, oh, actually they didn't. This is what they're missing. I really need to focus on an introduction because all my students didn't really write the introduction properly. And I feel that that's the way my students make the greatest gains. But I do feel a lot of pressure at in our schools and teaching at two different schools where you are deemed to be a um, disorganized or lazy teacher if that's the way that you teach rather than having all your PowerPoints in advance and, you know, it, in my last school, we were expected one person was meant to come up with the whole unit plan and every single lesson in that unit before the unit was taught. And that sort of like it just it made me feel very like a very terrible teacher because I was trying to be responsive, but I had to follow these lesson plans that someone had spent hours and hours creating. And I think there's this concern of like we don't trust teachers as true professionals that they know what they're doing and that they care enough to do that work. And I think, we need to trust teachers a little bit more that they are using their professional capacity to to assist their students in their best way. Absolutely. Well, the main problem with the way teacher evaluation is done is the failure to understand the difference between a novice teacher and a proficient teacher and an expert teacher. Novice teachers need to have it all nailed down minute by minute or they wig out when they go into the classroom. But once you get to a certain point, then you can wing it because you know your subject matter, you know your students and you can create the lesson as you go. And so there is a profound unwillingness to see the, pro- the trajectory of development in teacher expertise. You know, everyone's treated like a novice. But anyway, that's just my rat bag left to take on it. Well, I mean, I believe that teachers should have a curriculum map in place and maybe skeletal unit plans. And then from there, it's probably a good idea to do some backwards planning and, and say, okay, here I'm going to have this project due and here I'm going to have this paper due and, you know, your final or midterm or whatever is going to be here and here. But at that point from there, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to force a teacher to have the, the finished lesson plans in place because it, learning just doesn't work like that. You, you, know, you, you have to remediate at times. There are times when you think you're going to teach this, but you realize the students already know about that, but yet you finish this other unit and they didn't quite get it. So you need to slow down or go back. So I don't, I don't advocate for my students that they have to go in with their lesson, every lesson plan finished before they start. They just need to have a curriculum map to have an idea of where they're going and about when they're hitting certain standards. And then, you know, they can fill in from there, I think. It's Beth again. I've got another question. There was something that you mentioned at the end of your paper about maybe it being kind of the most effective or the method of independent silent reading being most effective for students who don't spend a lot of time or any time at home reading, but then maybe it might not be as effective for students who do spend a lot of time doing that already and that the gains that you saw if you're at a different sort of school they might not have been as great so I guess my question is about the implications of that for teachers in their classrooms where you've got students from you know really diverse range of backgrounds and abilities and what that might look like and one of the examples I could think of from my teaching something that I was kind of a bit unsure of but maybe I feel a bit more justified in doing after (laughs) reading this paper 
is the approach of if you're teaching English text, which you have to do in high school, that everyone has to read the same text. You can kind of start the lesson by doing a little comprehension activity or maybe something like what you said, a chapter summary and checking which students have and haven't read the text and then splitting them up and saying the ones who haven't read it, the best thing for you to do is to read it. And I usually provide, you know, summary notes and other sorts of props and background information that will help them grasp that if it is beyond their reading level. And then the students who have already read it, it might be more efficient for them to spend their time having a discussion or some other kind of activity where they're processing what they read. And I was wondering, do you advocate that as an approach or is there some other way that you can think of that teachers could apply this to their teaching to make sure that the kids yeah, who aren't reading at home are getting that important reading time in class? That's a really hard question because while you, you definitely want to diversify your instruction and in, in that scenario, you would be getting the, the lower level readers who aren't maybe aren't reading at home, they are getting that reading time, but then they would be missing that other time for the discussions and the clarifications and that those the more critical analysis. So then you have to weigh, you know, is it what is more important, just getting them to read or getting this extra time where they're going back and and wrestling with these concepts and really clarifying them. And I don't I, honestly, I don't know what the answer is, but to, to give an anecdotal example, my daughter is 12. She she reads constantly. She'll go through a you know, young adult novel in a couple days. So in her case, if her if her teacher is going to do independent silent reading, that extra half hour, 45 minutes a week is not going to make that much of a difference. Uh, you know, with with her reading outcomes, because it's such a small proportion compared to what she already does. But then the students who aren't doing that, who, who do not have that sort of time to put in outside of school, they do need that reading time. So, but the, the question of how to differentiate that in the classroom, that's a real hard question. And I don't know that I, I know the, the answer to that, you know, other than the, the teacher really just needs to assess those students' needs and use their own good professional judgment to figure out best how to allocate the time between students. But that's also why it can be so difficult for a teacher, who a high school teacher who may have, and, and this is not uncommon at all for a high school teacher to have some students in the classroom who are reading at a college level and others who are reading at a fifth or sixth grade level. That's a hard task for, for a teacher to really be able to address the needs of all that students, particularly if you're in a curriculum where, you know, it's kind of set, where they're expected to read certain classic works of literature and your, your uh, ability to deviate from that is very limited. So these are hard questions, but I, that's, <laughs> I don't, I don't have good answers for you for, for that. You know, it's something we're going to have to wrestle with in the future. All right. We might move into the closing questions, Josh. So first closing question is what advice would you give? Well, I'll pose this in, in two parts. What advice would you give your first year teacher self? And what advice would you give your first year researcher self? To my first year teacher self? 
I guess I don't know because I I would say stick with it. Well, I have stuck with it, and uh, I would I weathered that storm, you know. But for my students, they you know they have their own storms to, to weather. The they have so much responsibility during their senior years in college. It's actually kind of a breeze for them because they they have spent a lot of time in their internships and acting like a full-time teacher for much of the year. I didn't have that because I went through a different type of program where I didn't start teaching until my I was nearly done with my master's degree. So I had all this theoretical knowledge and I I was you know I'd gone through all those behavior management classes and pedagogy classes and I was ready to get into the classroom and I and by that time I was 30 or so. So uh, I wasn't like a lot of my own students who are 22, 23. You know, I was was fully an adult by the time I I stepped into the classroom. As far as being a researcher, my researcher self, I would advise myself to make sure I'm methodical in terms of getting something done every week to move things forward. New professors tend to have so much on their plate between teaching classes, serving on committees, meetings, everything they're asked to do. Podcasts. Podcasts. There you go. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit more established now, so I could work this in. But, yeah, what, what new researchers will sometimes do is they'll say, you know, they'll have their plan for what they want to do with their research, and they, they'll allocate you know, a couple hours at this time of the month and they get to that time of the month and they've got other things that take them away from that. It's, it's, and so they end up going a month or two or it gets, keeps getting pushed off. And research is unlike most other endeavors we do in our life in that it's long-term. You're, by the time you start thinking about a study, the time it is, you're done with data collection could easily be three years. So there's no payoff along the way. And then by the time it's published, could be another two years. So each one of those studies, you know, could be five years in the making. And you have to have that dedication and self-regulation to make sure that you are getting it done because nobody else is going to do it for you. Consistent, structured work. Sounds like good advice. What's your information diet like, Josh? Are there any people on Twitter you follow? Any particular education-related email lists you're on? Anything you suggest people people check out? Catherine. Catherine Scott. Yeah, check out some of her work. Anyone yeah. else? No, uh, da- you've mentioned Daniel Willingham a couple times. He, he's he's definitely one of my favorites. Other than that, I a lot of my research is now is done at a distance through my graduate students because they are pursuing their own research interests, and I'm helping out with their research. So I kind of, I look at the research that they look at and help them craft it. With my own research, I kind of get an idea and I use EBSCO Post as my as my database. That's, that's what we use at the university. I try to avoid research that comes through on social media, unless it's Daniel Willingham. But I, I, I tend to try to avoid stuff that's on social media because you know, I'll look at the study. If it's a strong study, then I'll, I'll 
you know, then I'll, I'll, I'll read, read into it and decide whether it's something I want my students to, to actually read as well. But I like the stuff you see on social media tends to be sensationalist. And so I, I try to try not to follow things that other people put out there and kind of just go kind of the traditional route of using using my search engine with my search terms and and tracing it back through the lit reviews and prior research. So I, I would say there's no other than that, it's it's just a you know, it's just a pretty traditional route of looking for research. And finally, Josh, any final calls to action, things you'd like listeners to go away after today's podcast and do? Well I would like it if teachers were more involved with research. And and from speaking with you guys and Catherine, it seems like there in Australia, you, you have, uh, it's you, maybe it, in your teacher training, that's well ingrained in, in those programs. I would like to see in here in this country for all teachers to be required to have a master's degree. And they would ideally get a degree in their field, a bachelor's degree first, and then go back another two years and, and get those pedagogy and research courses for their certification. I feel like, and, and I, do, I do believe some places in Europe have that model. I think that would be the best model. However, in order to do that, we would have to make it worth their while and actually pay them enough for that extra schooling and that, that the extra years when they're not earning that money. However, yeah, I know it's hard for teachers to, they have to learn their, their content, they have to learn their craft, and once you have all those pedagogy classes and the content, there's not a lot left in the curriculum for all the, the heavy-duty research and, you know, the, the, those reading all those studies on learning. So, unfortunately, what here, teachers in this country often kind of go by word of mouth and what, what the latest fad is. And that's one of the reasons I've been out to kind of bust the learning styles hypothesis. So I don't want teachers jumping on the latest fad. I want them to be using stuff in the classroom that we have reasonable, that we're reasonably certain will help their students learn more. In Germany, it takes seven years to train to be a teacher. You do a test, you do an exam to find out whether you're going to be admitted to the bachelor's program. You do your four years bachelor's program in which you're doing a lot of teaching as well. Then you do another exam to let you into the master's. You do two years in the master's and then you come out the other end and you go into an internship in which you teach for two years under supervision. And if you pass the test at the end of that, you're a teacher and no one can tell you that you don't know what you're doing, basically. Hard work, but very prestigious profession in Germany. And uh, yeah, you know, pretty much what doctors get to do, I think, in terms of their training. And no one argues with the efficacy for doctors. So. That's what we should be looking at, I reckon. Yeah, and I think it comes down to society putting that value on the teaching profession, being willing to, you know, if you're going to have that sort of requirement, which I think is is called for, then valuing teachers, paying them like professionals. And that's, that's not always the case. I, I'd like to see us get to a point where that is the case. Josh Cuevas, thank you so much for your time today. We've touched on some really, really important topics. I think we've done some myth busting. We've looked into cognitive science. We've also talked about reading and literacy and feedback even. So, thanks for your time and we, we look forward to you following your, 
your research in future. Well, I, I appreciate you having me on here, and uh, it's been it's been fun. I, it's 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 not work. It's I enjoy having conversations like this with educators and wrestling with the ideas and 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 the questions, and I have all kinds of new things that I can I can try to research with all the great ideas you've given me. Yeah, yeah. And if, you know, if you end up looking or even just with your students when you do that little experiment about the the VAC stuff, if you do mix it up a little bit and get them to think about some rhyming structures that encapsulate the meaning or whatever, uh, we'd love to hear about how that goes and what you find out. Yeah, I need to think about that, see if I can, I can maybe revise it a little bit, see if that if that changes anything. Yeah, it'd be interesting. All righty then. I think Catherine's going to say goodbye. Great to finally get to talk in, you know, real time. Wonderful. Keep the work up. So pleased to see that it's being continued. Yes, I appreciate I appreciate your very first paper that I still have my students read, and it was great to finally meet you. Okay, take care. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR with Josh Crevas. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollielover.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've really been enjoying the ERRR podcast, I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of the show through making a donation on Patreon. If you're an ongoing listener, a fan of the ERRR and value it as a professional learning resource, a one-off or monthly donation would help cover the cost of room hire and sound engineering and help to make the podcast more sustainable in the long run. Check out patreon.com forward slash ERRR to explore the possibility of supporting the show. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.